the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Mark. If there are four people involved in the vehicles and one person gets out and is just angry and outraged that the other guy hit him, one witness records this one guy was outraged. Another witness records this guy was outraged and the other three people weren't. That's not a contradiction. It's just that one witness talked about the one guy. The other witness talked about the one guy, but also mentioned that there were three others. You take the gospel accounts and you fold them together. Have you ever wondered why there are multiple accounts of Jesus' life? And maybe, have you questioned their validity? Pastor Gary will explain today that each of these gospel books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, stand as a testimony of Jesus' life. Now, their authors learned about his life by different means, through different people, and were written at different times. But they are cohesive. They tell the same truth about Jesus, while painting a picture of all aspects of the perfect Son of God. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Mark, chapter 15, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. And verse 40 says, Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. Sometimes the ladies don't get much uh, press coverage in, in the Bible as it relates to the ministry of Jesus because it often focuses on the 12 that he selected. But there were also some ladies who would travel with the Lord, and their purpose was that they would use their skills and their abilities to help produce income to sustain the ministry of Jesus. They cared for his needs, not just in some kind of emotional way, but, but in tangible ways. And in fact, that phrase there, they cared for his needs, in the King James it says they ministered unto him, and the Greek word is diakonos. We get our English word deacon from this term right here. Like in the, in the churches where you hear about deacons, deacons are a part of serving in the church and helping and caring for the needs of the people. You actually had some ladies, and they're named here, some of them who traveled with Jesus. And, you know, no doubt there was, there was very distinct, uh, you know, honorable, you know, there wasn't any kind of uh, compromising, you know, Jesus is with his 12, and then, you know, a bunch of ladies, and they're all camping together. You know, don't get that scene in your head. But it's the idea that, that in some proximity, these ladies also would travel uh, with the Lord and with his disciples, caring for their needs. 
and being a part of those who ministered to him. So very, very important, very wonderful, the mention of these ladies here. Um, Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. Uh, Notice the men are absent. Well, it tells us in uh, verse 42 that it was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. Now, this is where it gets a little, the timeline about the crucifixion of Jesus gets a little difficult here. I know traditionally we talk about Good Friday, that he's crucified on a Friday and arises on Sunday. That timeline is something that not everybody agrees with, including myself. Um, when it talks here about the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, in John 19, verse 31, when you look at the other Gospels and you compare things, in John 19, 31, John says it was a special Sabbath. Here's why. The day of preparation was the first day of unleavened bread on the Jewish calendar, and it was a sacred day that was to be observed like a Sabbath. And it is possible that you can have the day of preparation as a Sabbath day that butts up right against a regular Sabbath. Now, the regular Sabbath to the Jews starts sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. So Saturday is the Sabbath day for the Jews. It always has been. Sabbath is, is still technically you know, the day, although it's not about a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day, Colossians 3.16 tells us, but everything's been fulfilled in Christ. So we practice worshiping the Lord on Sundays now as a carryover of the resurrection celebration. But Sabbath, in technicality, is still Saturday. And it is likely that in this year, there was what we call a double Sabbath together. That there was a Friday Sabbath, because it was the day of preparation, and there was the regular Sabbath on Saturday. And that it is possible that Jesus, in fact, was crucified on Thursday. Now, look, it doesn't... Again, and I say this when I talk about the days of the crucifixion and stuff, it, it is hard to get Jesus in the grave and risen after three days if he dies on a Friday. That math just is really, really hard. But I know traditionally we, we believe that, we embrace it, and I've heard all kinds of things like, well, the Jews counted partial days as whole days, whatever. But anyway, that's what we need to do to try to make the math work. It's funny math. But anyhow, um, at the end of the day, sincerely, it doesn't matter whether he died on a Friday or a Thursday. What matters is that he died for our sins, Right. That's what matters. We do know when he rose from the dead because the Bible's clear on that one. It says the first day of the week. So we know that's Sunday. So we get that one. But exactly what day he dies, not entirely sure. Could it be Thursday? Could it be Friday? It could be either. So it says, as it goes on, So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, this is, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Sanhedrin, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Now, when you look in the other Gospels, it tells us that Joseph of Arimathea was actually a disciple of Christ, though privately, because he's got clout and status. He's a member of the Jewish ruling council. So he's still not out there publicly with his, with his faith in Jesus. But it does tell us in Luke twenty three fifty one that Joseph of Arimathea dissented from the vote to crucify Jesus. And the Jewish in the Sanhedrin, remember reading earlier last week's study, that they took a vote about Jesus being crucified, about they're going to have to take him to Rome to get him crucified, to the Roman government, uh, but that, they, he should, that he should be put to death. Luke tells us Joseph of Arimathea dissented. He said, no, I'm not going to agree to this. And he's going to go and ask Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, verse 44 says that Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. And here's the reason he was surprised. It tells us that Jesus was crucified at the third hour, which is 9 a.m., and that he died at the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m. So he hung on the cross 
from 9 to 3, and he died in six hours. And that was very unusual. Uh, Some historical things that I dug up said that crucifixion could last generally a day and a half or two days, sometimes three, but the shortest recorded crucifixion when somebody was nailed to when they died was 13 hours. But generally it took a day or two for somebody to succumb to this horrific act of, of crucifixion. And generally people would die from a combination of either asphyxiation, can't breathe anymore, your lungs fill up with fluid, uh, cardiac arrest. Usually those are the main two things. Remember Jesus' side was, was stabbed. Mark's gospel doesn't record it. And outflowed blood and water. And so the Roman soldiers pierced up underneath his rib cage and basically pierced the a pericardial sac around his heart, which had filled up with fluid. And so when that was pierced and water gushed out, really, Jesus died of a broken heart. I mean, you know, how, how telling for, for what he did for us. Pilate was amazed. And it says in verse 44, Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. And then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Now, they can't do anything about it because by the time they get Jesus off the cross and into the tomb, it's now hitting sunset, and it is starting a Sabbath. And if there are two Sabbaths back-to-back... If again, if he's crucified on a Thursday and by sunset Thursday night, now there's a special Sabbath on Friday because it's the first day of unleavened bread, followed by the regular Sabbath on Saturday. They still can't do any work. It's not until Sunday morning that they can actually go with the spices to not so much embalm his body, but it was was basically padded over the body of the dead to help with basically the odor of decomposition, and they would wrap him in linen. So now we have the scene of them going to the tomb But they have to wait till the Sabbath, and in this case, probably two Sabbaths together were over. So chapter 16, it says this, that when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, this is Sunday, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Now, we know from the other Gospels that this is an angel. When you look at some of the other Gospels, I think it's in John's Gospel, it tells us that that they saw two angels, and Mark's Gospel says basically one angel. In John's Gospel, an angel speaks to the women. In Mark's gospel, an angel is going to speak to the women. But this is the kind of place in the, in the text of the Bible where some critics will say, look, and in fact, I remember reading this Time magazine every once in a while, especially around Easter, they do stories about Christianity and the Bible and stuff. And I remember that they made one of these the point, skeptics who don't believe in the Bible. And they pointed to the fact that in Mark's gospel, it mentions one angel, and in John's gospel, it mentions two. And look how this is a contradiction. And you people who believe the Bible, you people are just idiots. That's basically what they were saying in the article. I paraphrase, but that's basically what they were saying. Listen, if you go and you're a witness to a car accident, and somebody else is a witness to the same car accident, you're going to mention some details, and the other witness is going to mention some details. If there are 
four people involved in the vehicles, and one person gets out and is just angry and outraged that the other guy hit him. One witness records, this one guy was outraged. Another witness records, this guy was outraged, and the other three people weren't. That's not a contradiction. It's just that one witness talked about the one guy, the other witness talked about the one guy, but also mentioned that there were three others. You take the gospel accounts and you fold them together. What we have is there are two angels, but one was the main spokesman of the two, and Mark is recording the words of the one angel. And the angel said to them in verse 6, Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they lay him, where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, that's interesting, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, Mark is the only gospel writer who adds that part about, go tell your disciples and Peter. Remember what I said to you when we were studying the book of Mark? That John Mark was a young guy at the time of Jesus and that he relied on, of course, by inspiration of the Spirit, but the eyewitness accounts, it is believed traditionally that Peter had a lot to do with influencing Mark. Peter, in his epistles, will write about John Mark being his son in the faith. So Peter was, was in the Bible, mentions about himself being John Mark's mentor. And so it's almost like when they get to this part, Peter says, all right, Mark, when you talk about how the angels gave that special news, that special announcement to the disciples, add the part two about that special invitation just for me. I don't know if it was quite that egotistical, but here's the real reason. Remember, Peter was the one who denied Jesus. Peter was the one who had completely denied even knowing Jesus. Of all the disciples, Judas aside for his betrayal, Peter was the one who no doubt felt most ashamed because even after he denied Jesus, the Bible says he wept bitterly. So you know what this says to me? That God knowing that among the 11, 12 minus Judas, that among the 11 who need the most encouragement is the guy who had betrayed, denied Jesus. So the angel says to these ladies, when you see the disciples, be sure to tell the guy who feels most guilty, it's going to be okay. What a great way that God takes care of us, even when we've done stupid, sinful, shameful things. We need to be reminded every once in a while that God in heaven has a special word of grace. It's going to be okay. I see your tears of sorrow and repentance. Here's a special word. It's going to be okay. Well, verse 8, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now, how many people right here have a line, a break in your Bible right after that verse? Let me see your hands. How many of you have a break right there? All right. So let me just clarify this before I, I finish reading the text here, because we, we only have about another five or six minutes. So in my Bible right here, it says the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have Mark 16, 9 through 20. And so these are considered disputed verses. Should these really be in the Bible or not? And they're really referring to one of the most ancient texts, the ancient Greek texts, uh, the original Greek texts of, well, not really original, because about fourth century, one of the oldest manuscripts that we have in possession in, in the Greek language of the Bible is called the Codex Vaticanus. It's technically the Codex Vaticanus B, not A, B. And it is held today in the Vatican. It is owned by the, the Roman Catholic Church in their possession. 
And the Codex Vaticanus does not have these verses, and it is one of the oldest manuscripts dating back to about the 4th century. So some are, you know, question this. If you have a King James Bible, it doesn't, it doesn't say any of this, okay? So you can read straight through. But listen, the reason why this should be included in, in the Bible is because there are other more ancient texts that quote from these verses. The Codex Vaticanus is not the end-all of texts, although it is a very important ancient manuscript, but the Codex Vaticanus also does not have Genesis 1 through 46. It also does not have Hebrews 9 to the end. It has none of the pastoral epistles, and it doesn't have the book of Revelation at all. So when people go around going, I'm not sure this, for the theologians who really care about such a thing, all right, there you go. And for those of you who don't care, it's more information than you needed. But now let's finish out the rest of the text. So it it should be in here. Because listen, if it ended, if all of this story ended at verse 8, how depressing. How depressing at the end of verse 8. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. End of the Bible. Let's go. That would be so depressing. So let's read the rest of it. When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. Isn't that interesting? That tells us something about her. She had been possessed by demons and she had been delivered by Jesus. She went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe it. Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. And I think Luke's gospel gives more description about that scene. These returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. You know, I mean, Jesus is trying to get word to them. Here's the ladies. Oh, we don't believe it. How about these other two guys that, oh, we don't believe it. So now Jesus is with them and he's like, you guys, you know, you're thick. You do not get, I'm sending witnesses to you. You don't get it. So he says to them in verse 15, go into all the world and preach the good news translation gospel, to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Okay, now pause right there. Some people believe that baptism is a required component to salvation because you can read something like this where he says whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but read the rest of it. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. How does that clarify the first part? Because Jesus did not add the baptism part. In other words, someone is not condemned for not having been baptized. Condemnation rests solely on disbelief. On disbelief. Baptism is a good thing we should do as evidence, as an external evidence of an internal work. The Lord wants us to be baptized. Water baptism shows that we identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it is not believe in Jesus and be baptized. Anything you add to the single message of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, you've just not made it a works-oriented system. And the one thing that separates Christianity from all other world religions, Hinduism, Islam, Buddhism, everything, is that it is solely based on what God has done for us, and you respond to that by faith. You can't add to it or improve upon it. And the moment you make it faith in Jesus plus baptism, faith in Jesus plus speaking in tongues, faith in Jesus plus communion, faith in Jesus in anything, you've made it a works-oriented salvation. And that has nullified the cross. It is belief in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone for the salvation of all who would believe and receive. Okay? 
Just want to make sure everybody understands that because there's a lot of the quirky stuff out there and we need to understand that it is faith in Jesus Christ alone. So verse 17, and these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. Uh, He talks about here, there will be some evidence to your relationship with Christ. And he talks about here, the power of God still at work to drive out demons. Does God still and can he still do that? Yes, absolutely. I've seen that kind of a thing. I know that he still does this kind of thing. They will speak in new tongues. Are the gifts of the Spirit still available today? Yes. I don't think you have to speak in tongues in order to be evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But that's for another whole Bible study about the gifts of the Spirit, okay? And unfortunately, the abuses of the gifts have made some people, you know, completely opposed to them. And I get that because there's been horrible abuses to the gifts. But we have to make sure that we keep the balance. We don't, we don't just throw the baby out with the bathwater just because there's been some abuses of a lot of things in church history over the years. And, uh, and so the gifts of the Spirit are still available. Not one particular gift is the sign of the evidence. It is love. That's why 1 Corinthians 13 is nestled right between chapters 12 and 14 that talk about the gifts of the Spirit. Love is the evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Not any one gift. It is love. And he also talks about picking up snakes with their hands. Now, is this what Jesus means? Let's just go out and find a copperhead tonight. You know what I'm saying? No, that's not what he's saying here, okay? You know, and the other thing is I noticed that is remarkable. The churches, and it's just a very small few, very small few, who, who do these kind of snake things involved in the worship service. And talks about here about drinking, about drinking deadly poison and the snake part. But I've never seen a church of Drano. You know, first church of Drano. I've never seen that. We're going to do the snake part, but we don't, we don't want to drink, you know, antifreeze. Look, the whole thing, Jesus is not saying, go out and do this. What he's saying is that as the gospel advances around the world, there will be some problems that you will encounter that are the natural results of going into all parts of the world and sharing the gospel. Acts 28, when Paul goes to the island of Malta, he's not really there by choice. He's on his way to appeal to Caesar. And on the, on the way, there's a shipwreck. And he ends up on the island of Malta. And the Bible says that he goes to pick up some logs for the fire. And he's bitten by a snake. It's a venomous snake. And he doesn't die because God's grace was upon him. It doesn't mean go out and find snakes and prove that if you can be bitten and sustain a venomous bite, that it must be you're more godly. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying as you go and advance the gospel, you're going to go into remote places. You might be bitten by snakes. You might drink something that could kill you. But the power of the Lord is still there to sustain you and to help you in, in those hours. Drinking deadly poison, snake bites, and it will not hurt them at all. And they will place their hands on the sick, and they will get well. And God still heals people today. Does he heal every single person we pray for? No, I wish that he would. He doesn't heal them the way we want. But does he always heal people? Either medically, miraculously, or eternally. God always heals people. Sometimes, though, just not the way we would want because we want our loved ones here and we don't we don't ever want this the strain and stress of what death brings but sometimes it's no reflection on a person's faith or lack thereof that god just sometimes wants to just decides to take people home all the days ordained for us are written in his book before one of them came to be you can't hasten it and you can't lessen it god knows what he's doing he's on the throne Sometimes he can miraculously heal and does, and sometimes he takes people home to heaven. And it says in verse 19 that after the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven, and he sat at the right hand of God. Notice he didn't stand, he sat, because his work was finished. And then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them 
and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. Thanks for joining Pastor Gary today for this study in the Gospel of Mark on Cornerstone Connection. If you'd like to hear this teaching again or explore additional messages, visit cornerstoneconnection.cc and click on Teachings. You can also download our mobile app. Find the On The Go link under the Teachings tab. Do you live in or near Leesburg, Virginia? If so, we invite you to join us for church at Cornerstone Chapel. We're meeting each Sunday in person at 8.30, 10, and 11.45 a.m. We also meet on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Cornerstoneconnection.cc is the place to get all the information you need, along with directions to our campus. You can also see what's going on during the week and what Cornerstone Chapel offers in the way of small groups, youth ministry, and more. We'd love to meet you, but if you're not able to join us in person right now, that's okay. We're live streaming each Sunday and Wednesday service at cornerstoneconnection.cc. Our 11.45 a.m. service also offers interpreting for those who speak Spanish. If you have any questions for us, or if you'd like to share a prayer request, we'd be honored to talk with you. Send us an email at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's all we have time for today, but thanks for joining us to study the book of Mark. We hope you'll tune in again here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know